everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey everybody, sorry I'm late. I uh, oh, hey, Wayne. had a little trouble getting on the internet here today. Apologize. Yeah, How you doing, Byron? Yeah, I'm doing really well. How about yourself? It's uh, Thursday, almost the middle of the day for me, so it's probably not quite that late in the week for you. It is Wednesday, um, 5 o'clock. So. Yeah, yeah. Colorado Mountain, right? I am in the Colorado Mountains. Yeah. And what? Yeah, what beautiful. Part, what part of New Zealand are you in? I know you're in New Zealand. Uh, I'm in the North Island, which is the Bay of Plenty. So if you're looking at it kind of zoomed out on a map, it's the big bay, kind of at the top of the North Island. You ever yeah, heard of a fellow named Zebulon Harrell? That name ring a bell? Say it one more time. Zeb. His, his full name is Zebulon, but Zeb Harrell. No, I don't think I had. That's a pretty unique name, so I would have remembered it, but I don't think I've heard of him. He is becoming the Joel Salatin of New Zealand. So, really? Yeah, he's an amazing guy. We did a webinar together, but he's also become a very close friend. And Joel, th this is Joel's words of him becoming the Joel Salatin of New Zealand. Not, not his, not mine. Joel, I introduced him to Joel, and he had a chance to spend a number of times with him. I'll figure out how to get you together. And he's silent. I'm just not sure exactly where. Yeah, that would be so amazing to touch base. Well, um, I'm sorry, again, I'm late, but I think we're going to do just kind of an interview here today. I want to do a little logistics first. I know Mark might have done some of this, but for all of our attendees, it will be a lot of fun if you guys ask questions, because my questions will be all right, but yours are great. So please ask some questions. Mark will be looking at them. I probably won't, because I want to focus on my conversation with, with Byron. And, um, but Mark, if you see some questions that fit in, interrupt us, and we'll, we'll get to them, and, and then we'll do some question and answer at the end also. So yeah, I um I speculated. I I spent quite a bit of time yesterday on your Instagram page, your Facebook page, and site. And you know, this is just you, this would just happen. So I I use a landline to connect by audio because I'm on a satellite system, and there's a delay about almost a second. And if I use the audio on the computer, it it gets it, it buffers it, but it's just a little weird. But I've been on calls all day. This phone is going dead, and I, it's real easy to switch it, but i got to go in the other room to switch it. I'm going to do that real quick, and I'll be right back. I'll stay on the phone. I'll keep You guys are just going to see my webcam blank for a minute. But anyway, I visited yeah. all of your, your kind of web presence. It was a lot of fun. But here's what I didn't pick up, and Areeb gave it to me earlier, which was your last name which I think is Briss. Is that, am I pronouncing it right? Is that correct? No, you've swapped the R and the I. It's Bierce. Bierce. Well, uh, Arib is amazing English from learning really just by listening to things on Radio America and so on. But, but sometimes he doesn't get things exactly right. So um, Bierce. And then are you a native New Zealander, or did you come there? I know it, I heard on a video that I watched that you, you, you kind of gave up your job and a number of other things not that long ago, but I'm not sure where you were physically before that. Yeah, no. So it's um, I'm not a native New Zealander. It's the accent, you can probably tell. Uh, I'm from the West Coast over in Oregon, um, okay. and I only actually moved out here about three years ago to New Zealand. Um, so I was just talking with Mike, I think before about how lucky that timing was just like right before COVID and a lot of stuff happened where it's like, now it's incredibly difficult to get into the country. Um, so really lucked out in that respect. 
Yeah, I was going to say, um, it it couldn't have been super easy even three years ago, correct? How long did you go through sort of the visa process? And are you now, can you stay as long as you choose or what's the status? Yep, so I'm I'm a permanent resident. um, And I'll be honest with you, Wayne, it was actually super easy for me because I came in on the coattails of my parents. Uh, My mom was able to get a job here and at the time, I kind of came in alongside them um, as a dependent. And so that made the whole process way easier than if I had decided to just individually, like, you know, on my own, tried to come here and become a resident. Got it. Well, you probably yeah. notice I have a similar uh, generic English dialect as you do. I'm from Southern California. I think West Coasters sort of all sound somewhat the same because we we all have fairly near relatives that weren't from here, um, and so they are not where I'm at now. Even Colorado, even Colorado fits into that, I think, but certainly Southern California does. Um, I have a daughter and son-in-law who are in, in Corvallis and um, just moved there last June, so I haven't gotten to visit them yet, mainly because of the pandemic. But So what part of Oregon were you, were you at? Um, all around Oregon, and to be honest, I have family in Corvallis, so that's great. Is she going to school? Is she going to OSU? No, no, she's um, her her husband is an IT guy, and he is a, a partner in a, a relatively new firm that's putting wireless internet throughout the the region uh, outside of Corvallis. So they actually live in Philomath, um, which as you probably know is just a little suburb just to the east to the west, and she's. She's a starving artist um, and actually does have a job. She writes and is an editor too, but really likes to paint and to, to weave and to spin and to draw and sculpt and all those sorts of things. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's so much opportunity for those kind of things, especially in Oregon. It's just a really beautiful place, um, Corvallis particularly though. And, and is the weather a little bit similar where you're at in terms of rainfall and temperature? Yeah, it's just an, a slight bit warmer. I mean, it, I came from a variety of places in Oregon. I lived on the coast. I lived up in the Willamette Valley, and I lived down in southern Oregon, um, just in Ashland. And so I kind of there's a range of weather on the West Coast. But as a whole, it's just warmer here. We don't really get snow at all where we are. Um, the days are just much more like it just what it feels like is winter just kind of doesn't really happen. It goes spring, summer, fall, and then it just kind of bleeds back in to spring. That, that almost sounds San Francisco Bay-ish or maybe even LA-ish. I mean, it's so. Yeah, yeah. Kind of that Mediterranean climate where, you know, you do have the, the humid and the hot relatively dry summers and then the mild winters um yeah it's a great place though it's very and it's interesting too because the culture isn't big, that big of a shock either so like climate not a big shock it's slightly americanized here and so it doesn't it, well there wasn't a huge culture shock whereas if you'd gone elsewhere in the world um you know it could be quite a bit of an adjustment so tell us about your your uh what what spurred your passion for permaculture? Um, is that a childhood thing? There, there must have been something either that happened, you know, at an instant or over a period of time. Tell us about that. Well, it's kind of both. It's funny that you say that, that phrasing of like in an instant, but also over a span of time because it happened in both ways. It, the first way in an instant, I had never even heard of the word permaculture before until two years ago. I like, came across what that word was and I was like, oh, what is this? I, you know, clicked what it means, read the definition, like, and it just clicked. I was like, oh, that's exactly it. That's what I want to be doing. But before that, it was this big lead up kind of from like, you know, ever since I was like really young, I was going to like outdoor programs. I was like doing Boy Scouts. I was teaching summer camps. I was doing like all this stuff outdoors. I was going to outdoor school. I even went to university for environmental science. And so it felt like this whole, like, it was kind of like, being exposed to these kind of things without calling it permaculture or without putting a name to it or that kind of focus. But I was 
accumulating all these experiences throughout my life and I'm, I'm still super young i'm only 26 but i've been accumulating those kind of really rich outdoor in touch with the environment and the ecosystems experiences since i was a little kid and so then to be you know 24 and you know click the definition what permaculture was it just snapped in immediately i was like oh that's what i want to do and so i was working in a different job at that point in time when I, you know, I figured out, oh, that's what permaculture is. And I immediately knew like, oh, that's what I want to be doing. I don't know how it's going to happen, but because what was so attractive about it to me was that it was so multidisciplinary in the sense that you can, you know, permaculture as it's like really classically thought of as like companion planting and like gardening on steroids, but it's, it's, that's one approach or that's one way that it's reflected but really it's such a multidisciplinary thing where you can you know you can apply that kind of framework to anything from like energy to to building construction to art to creating these ecosystems these gardens like there's so many things that you can apply permaculture to and that's what was almost so appealing about it is like it wasn't this very narrowly defined like track of like this is what that means when you do permaculture um and because of that, because of the freedom that it gives you to explore other things, you know, within that realm that have an interest to me, like creating beautiful, you know, and ecosystems and working towards restoration of the planet in a way that makes sense for people and like the, all the systems at play, that was really appealing to me. And it kind of gave a way forward, whereas I just kind of come from graduating university and I got into this job that was like the ideal job from getting that degree where they like train you to become this and I got that job and it was just not what I expected maybe because you know you go to school for environmental science you want to like do great things for the for the planet you want to like you know you want to make things that are going to benefit a better future and in a lot of ways it didn't feel like that was at the core of the degree or the job that I was working and so I there was there was this um, disconnect between like what I really wanted out of you know life, which is what I'm trying to do, and why I went to school for that in the first place, and what was actually happening, which was you know just going out and doing like routine monitoring stuff, and there was just this big disconnect. And so when I came across what permaculture was, it afforded an opportunity of like, oh wow, here's a way to get closer to kind of like realign with like what it is you actually give a shit about, and that was really exciting, and that's kind of like where that wormhole opened up and I just began like, you know, free falling into it pretty much. Very cool. We'll talk, we'll, we'll get into a lot more of that detail in a few minutes. You know, we've got a lot of similarities. Um, uh, age, obviously we're very close to the same age. Not, not really, but, um, but I, uh, I had an instantaneous sort of revelation when I was in my basically junior high age time frame, and, and, a lot of our listeners know what that is, and this isn't my webinar, so I'm not going to talk about that. But, but I also uh, I, uh, I I took the other approach to the environmental sciences area. I could never picture doing what it sounds like you did, so I just formed my own firm when I was uh, when I was uh, a graduate student, and I was never going to work for anybody else, and never have actually since. And and I, I just said, you know what, I'm going to do projects that I enjoy. And in that case, in that time, it was um, cleaning up the remains of, of mining in the Pacific Northwest um, that had just destroyed forest ecosystems. And I was able to, to work for um, several of the, the, the governmental entities, cities, um, counties, and others that were, that were in that process. But anyway. The bottom line is that um, that created curiosity. Where'd you go to school first? Where'd you do your, your college or your university education? And what was the environmental firm you went to work for? And just a tiny little more detail for me, and then I'll get a sense of, of, uh, of, of your job. Yeah, basically, I actually went to two um, schools for university. I went to a community college, which was great because it was pretty much free. And so instead of like paying outrageous amounts of money for the first two years of like general yeah. education, which are just the classic court. Yeah. So did those for free at Chemeketa. That's in Salem, Oregon. 
Um, and that was great because I didn't feel this pressure of like, oh shit, I'm spending $20,000 a year. I need to like be using that wisely. I felt like I could play around a little bit more. And so I was taking like all these psychology classes and art classes, and pottery. And I was just like really enjoying myself without the, the financial burden of like, but I got to make like big decisions. It was really great. And so then my, in my last term of doing that, I took an environmental science course, which was just amazing because I remember we, we were always doing field trips and we were always, I had this memory, this teacher took us out in canoes and we were just out in the estuary taking water samples and like there's bald eagles flying over and it was just the best, man. It was so cool. Like we're in this amazing outdoor space, just like enjoying ourselves. And I felt really compelled after that to like, yeah, that's the direction that I want to go. I want to be having those kind of experiences. Um, so then after the first two years, I went to Southern Oregon University out of Ashland um, and I did their environmental science and biology program there. Um, and I really enjoyed it. it. It was a great place to, you know, Ashland is such a unique place geographically because it's kind of at an intersection between a lot of different kinds of ecosystems. And so it affords a really cool opportunity. I remember I took a herpetology class and basically like the study of reptiles and amphibians. And we spent a week, the whole class was like 10 or 15 people. And we spent a week in two buses traveling around a, a cross section of Oregon. And because the ecosystems of Oregon are kind of laid out vertically, right? You have like coastal, coastal mountains, higher mountains, and then you have desert all laid out vertically. If you do a cross section across them like that, you can go, you can span a great diversity of ecosystems in a very short period of time. And so we spent a week just traveling in a van, just like, you know, driving for an hour, jumping out, picking up some rocks, looking under them for some reptiles and snakes and diving into the bushes and finding these really cool. And it was just a great like experience to be out in the field doing these things. And so going to school and exposing myself to a lot of those different kinds of environments and just those fulfilling things like being outdoors, getting in touch with the world and learning about it. Um, that was super enjoyable. And so kind of like off the back of that, graduate, spend a year working at an outdoor school in Ashland, basically a whole year. Cause I had done a lot of summer camps. I'd been a counselor at like Boy Scout camps. I was a lifesaver or a lifeguard. I would teach like robotics classes to kids. I would do like really fun, enjoyable things um, for short periods of time over the summer. But then to do a year long, basically a whole year of outdoor school where we would take these kids on backpacking trips. We would lead them on like weekend long or or whole week long overnight camping trips. It was just really um, a nourishing experience. And so that was also part of it is like education and bringing kids into it and making this an accessible thing for them. Um, after that is when I moved to New Zealand. And I actually applied when I was still living in the States. I applied, I had my interview over Zoom. Um, and then I arrived, pretty much got the job right away and started working pretty much near immediately once I moved here. Um, and that was with local government basically doing environmental monitoring, which is what I went to school for. It's kind of like what they train you. They like kind of like funnel you into that in a lot of ways, um, you know, and it's like the dream job. It was super cool. I was outside like 99% of the time, way out in the mountains, in the rivers. We would um, use like we'd take helicopters and fly out into the mountains to like calibrate um, environmental monitoring stations. And it was a really great job in that respect that in so many ways, it allowed me to to come into New Zealand and really get grounded and not have this immediate financial pressure of like, oh crap, I've moved to this country, what am I gonna do? Um, it also got me in touch with the local, just the local geography, the local community, the climate, like just a great place to come and have some stability, basically is what I'm saying. Um, and in that, it afforded me the ability, A, to, um, purchase property here with my parents. And so that has been a big part in what's kind of allowed this to happen because moving here and then buying a little piece of land almost was the the impetus, like the thing that sparked that curiosity of like, oh, what can you do in your backyard that like creates these beautiful ecosystems that feed us? And that's kind of where, that's kind of what led to me discovering what permaculture was because this place has a bunch of fruit trees on it and it was kind of like a neglected old orchard 
and so I, you know, after moving here to this property, I jumped on Google. Oh, that's it, actually, right there. That's when we first moved here. Um, I was on Google. I was like, oh, how do you, how do you like manage an orchard in an ecological way? How do you create an ecosystem out of an orchard? That's because, to me, in my mind, that's what this is about. It's like restoring landscapes that integrate well with people. And I don't see classic orchards as being those ecosystems that are valuable to the planet, wildlife, and humans. Um, and so that's kind of where my mind led. It was like, cool, how do you manage an orchard in an ecological way? And then permaculture pops up. Like, okay, cool, that, and then that, and then that, and then you just kind of go down the rabbit hole. Um, and then fast forward almost two years, um, and here we are. So did you, uh, did you take a PDC, or um, who, became, who became a hero? of yours in the in the permaculture world after you 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 learned the word and you realized that gosh it's more than just gardening it's a lifestyle it's a uh well, it's I, a way to but i didn't know that live. first so yeah I, the first thing i did i remember i figured it out I, I learned what permaculture was i read the definition and that same evening i looked up you know cool locally what is there what's around me that i can like learn from and the closest thing to me was about an hour and a half away so I called this woman, she had a course, she had a course going already. Um, I called her and basically it's, it's a year long PDC. So a full year, basically you go there um, one weekend every month and they were already two months into it. So I was kind of calling, basically saying like, hey, I'm really interested, I just found out about this. Can I join late, is that all right? Um, and she goes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then went up there, I think probably two weeks later and just loved it, really enjoyed it. And, had something to sink my teeth into, which was so great. Like having just discovered what this was and then finding something that like really captivated me so much to just be able to like bite into. And then that led to more meeting more people, meeting more people being exposed to different things. Um, so it was very much like in-person learning, but also so much back end learning, like watching YouTube videos and reading books and just kind of keep, like, just keep on consuming things that I found interesting. Because that's part of that's part of it is I really just enjoy the learning process and you know following that curiosity um, and so that's a lot of what this is about it's kind of just following that learning edge of you know things that pique my interest and how can I apply that to what I'm doing now. Um, so you you got into your PDC with the lady. Um, how about as you were doing that, did she talk about other people who had influenced her and did that prompt you to do some reading or watch some YouTube videos or, you know, do whatever to, to get learning? Who are, what are some names? I mean, you realize how close you are to Bill Holmgren compared to here and us here in the U.S. and, and to Mollison and to, you know, Jeff Lawton and, and Doherty and any number of those folks in Australia. But it's interesting permaculture hadn't really ever caught on in New Zealand, um, not in any way like it did in Australia. It still hasn't today, I don't believe. But, uh, permaculture in New Zealand, you mean? Other names? Um, well, yeah, so many, uh, some specifics. Um, the, cool, the format of the PDC was actually really great because it was never just Catherine, the woman who hosts these PDCs on her own. It was never just Catherine. Um, and she, her, that, um, she runs Plenty Permaculture is who that is. They're based out of um, the Western Bay of Plenty. But she would never be alone. Basically, she would always bring somebody in kind of to co-host. So she'd bring people from all around to expose us to a variety of people with specific interests. You know, someday on, on one of the weeks, it was um, a woman named Kazel, and she does a lot with um, soil science. And then it was somebody else from a different part of New Zealand who focuses on water. And then it was a different person who focuses on design process. And so in that, I met people, you know, more local to me and then extended. Um, but that really enhances your network of who you're coming across and who you can, oh, I'm really interested in, in water management. So I'm going to kind of closely follow what this person is doing over here. Um, and for me, that ended up being really valuable because one of the people that she brought on, who was actually a mentor of hers, um, his name is Dan Palmer. and he actually just lives right around the corner from us just about 20 minutes away and he has a huge he has his own podcast and he writes books and he's basically got this whole community go like gathering 
around permaculture design process and making that um, making that stronger. You, you might have heard of the podcast. It's called Making Permaculture Stronger. Um, and it basically has this really big emphasis on design process rather than, you know, just taking taking goodies from the permaculture grab bag and sprinkling them around in the landscape. Like, oh, you need a chicken tractor and oh, you need a you need a herb spiral and you need this. Because to me, that's not permaculture. Permaculture isn't just taking like the trendy elements and just kind of like dropping them into a landscape and calling it permaculture. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of how it can appear, especially like if you just Google permaculture garden, you'll see like herb spirals and you see all the really nice Pinterest photos. But to me that like that almost doesn't honor the the real potential and the real richness of what permaculture is and can be. And so what I love about what Dan's doing and, and a lot of his work has informed the way that I'm beginning to operate is it really honors that design process as being like almost the integral part of what can make permaculture such such a practical thing. Um, yeah, and so I think that's been one of those really significant like mentor relationships. Mark Shepard, I've never met him, but I've communicated a little bit on Instagram with him and I've watched tons of his videos, read his books. Um, I know you've had him on as a guest before and that really caught my attention. He was, he was my partner for two years. So I, I yeah, not only had him on, we're, we were very close. Really? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so the work that he does is really inspired a lot of like how I see, um, I guess at like the really high level of like, cool, what ecosystem, what biome, what what plant and animal communities naturally occurred on the site where you are. Cool, model these productive, edible, economic, model like model those ecosystems off of what the native ecology was. And so that idea really, really struck a chord with me. Um, yeah, and it just felt like it unlocked something and then reading his book was just super valuable. Um, so he's definitely been one of the big, big influential people that's kind of like steered this journey in a certain kind of way for me. So do you, uh, do you follow the principle of stun? Does that mean anything to you? Have you heard Mark I use love that it. term? Stun is Absolutely. strikingly terrific utter neglect, which means yeah. that yeah. you can have an ecosystem that you're that you're in, in somehow managing that can be managed with stun. You've done the right thing. And uh, yeah, I think I've I've heard it as sheer total utter neglect. Because like yeah. I don't want to have to baby plants, you know. I don't want to have to like coddle things. If it's gonna want to die, cool. See you later. I don't want your genetics. I want things that are hardy and can withstand the climate and the local ecosystem and just I, whatever condition. I, you know, I don't want to sign myself up for all this work. So tell us. Let's. That's a great transition. We've been seeing lots of really amazing uh, images in the background and some videos as we've been talking here. Tell us what you've done on the place you're now living, and and, and maybe maybe you can even direct uh, Mark to to a particular set of uh, locations on your Instagram page or whatever to maybe show. I hope you took some images of before and after of some things that you've done, so that you can uh, uh, in the future use that. Yeah, it's interesting. In a lot of ways, it feels like I have like only just barely gotten started because we've only been here for two years and in the scheme of things that's like no time at all what it is though two years is enough time to kind of like get my feet into the ground and feel like I have an understanding of where I'm going where, what's kind of happening on the landscape um yeah there's a I think actually one of the other pictures that was up on the Facebook page of like the drone footage with the mountain in the background could be a good one to kind of help describe a little bit about what's happening um because it's an interesting property. It's it's long and skinny, and it's on two sides, bordered by some pretty pretty opposite elements. Um, one of them being a big road, right? There's a highway that borders one edge of it, um, and then on the other edge of the property is a stream. It's a riparian area, and so I guess in my mind, what's happening is. To me, it's almost like a place to learn. It's a place for me to learn, experiment, and really cut my teeth. Because if I'm imagining myself, you know, if this is going to be 
a 40, 50, 60 year thing for me that I'm like interested in pursuing this kind of stuff. To me, this is like just the place to really make make as much learning happen here as I can, right? I want to cut my teeth. I want to try things. I want to experiment and I want to push what's possible. Um, and I guess in the end, I kind of not in the end because there is no end, but I guess over time I see this becoming more and more of a demonstration site, right? An education site. How do you, how do you turn an orchard or just a, a, a degraded ecosystem into something lush, productive, beautiful, ecologically resilient, um, productive, right? How do you do those things? And so what's happened is, and obviously my, my, my thoughts on what's happening here at the property have changed over the last two years, but the pattern I think roughly is that it's becoming a demonstration site, right? Whether that's permaculture or agroforestry, I'm not gonna put a specific label on it because then it excludes other potentials, but it's becoming a place that yeah, can can show what's possible in a landscape. Um, As you with look this at climate. the ecological history of where you're at, going back before humans started to impact it, what would it have looked like? Yeah, great question. Basically, it it's a really unique kind of ecosystem. It's a temperate rainforest, and so we're just about a kilometer away from a really big river. And so it's a lowland temperate rainforest floodplain, very flat. There would have been swamps here historically, but um, as humans do, we scratch little marks into the surface of the earth and drain the water away and then wonder why, um, you know, we have droughts and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, historically, this was a lowland temperate rainforest. And so part of what I'm doing um, is, is trying to recreate that ecosystem with with edible productive medicine timber fuel fiber those those really useful species those useful plants um, and create a, a living ecosystem here where maybe when we arrived two years ago and it still is to that to, to an extent becoming something different but it's not much of an ecosystem that is supporting humans because when you think about you know the beautiful growing climate we have here the rich fertile soil of the floodplains um how much potential there is to like really be resilient and not being reliant on these huge massive massive systems right we can grow so much food here we can grow so much beautiful timber here we can provide for so much for ourselves and for wildlife and to the community where bef before when we first moved here it was literally just like grass and trees very much classic orchard right um and so I guess part of what the motivation is to like explore that edge of what's possible, you know, part of it's also riparian restoration, repairing these waterways because New Zealand is full of waterways that are just right up against cows, right? Like pasture for cows and then there's about one meter and then you have a waterway. And then we wonder why, we wonder why the ecology of these streams and it's just, it, there's so much potential. Right. There's so, so much potential. And so when you can organize these beautiful ecosystems in a way that helps restore the environment, makes makes these living ecosystems more interesting to work in. First of all, like it's a diverse thing. It's beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing. And there's a diversity of things that keep it interesting. And it's economically productive. There's just so much potential there. And it's like, cool, just scratching the surface of seeing how that can how that can happen. Um, that's exciting to me. So like, that's part of well, what this journey is, exploring that. Awesome. What would have been the historic keystone species in the area? You know? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I'm, I'm, I'm still new to New Zealand. And so my understanding of like, native New Zealand ecology is so different to what I come from in the States, where your, your keystone species are things like deer, elk, coyotes, um, not coyotes, wolves, like those like very characteristic things. Whereas here, there were no mammals. It was just tons and tons of birds. The bird life was just absolutely crazy. Um, there was like big 12 foot 
birds that couldn't fly but they looked like dinosaurs are called the moa um, so it's just such a different ecology that it's almost hard for me to know like oh this was a keystone species and this wasn't and then because you know over the last thousand years so many of those have either a gone extinct or are no longer present in the landscape because it's orchard after orchard after orchard after orchard after you know dairy farm after dairy farm after dairy farm so it's hard to at least for me with my knowledge of um just local ecology to have a really clear idea of this is a keystone species and this is but on a on a plant level basically there were massive massive trees that created these beautiful like native bush isn't uncommon to you know it's kind of all around dotted dotted around landscapes and it's just a really beautiful thing to be inside of and just at every level of the forest you, it just feels so lush and inviting and it's um part of it is just recreating that feeling whether it's with native species or edibles or a mix of the two it's just recreating that feeling of like feeling nestled within an ecosystem that you're in touch with um yeah so what would be some of that what would be some of the most annoying invasives that you end up dealing with as you're starting to put your own footprint on that on that property it's such a funny question that you asked i love that because like you're familiar with mark shepherd and his ideas on what's an invasive species and what's not um and the plant right there that we're looking at that's a mexican sunflower it's definitely exotic and it definitely has potential to be a, a really bad invasive species um and the interesting thing is that about invasives is we demonize certain plants because we don't perceive them as good whatever that means or we perceive them as destructive but i think part of part of what that is or part of what it maybe requires is just a little bit of like ecological literacy a little bit of education around the plant to understand that oh maybe it's not like generically bad but oh it's doing something it's providing a service to the ecosystem otherwise it wouldn't be doing it right all plants contribute towards ecological succession in some way or another whether it's lichen on a fence post that's slowly you know creating this rudimentary soil or whether it's a mexican sunflower or a weedy dandelion like there's so many different plants that we have a bad reputation for no other reason other than we have these preconceived notions of how things maybe should be right and so there's a few in you know invasive species there's a few really weedy species that are basically the ones that thrive on stun sheer total utter neglect the ones that you can just chuck in and they'll grow vigorously they'll do a great job at it and part of what i actually do is i utilize that i harness that because what that's doing is it propels succession forward and there's this really great this beautiful beautiful story of a man on the banks peninsula um down on the south island and basically the story is he turned this degraded, you know, massive acreage of degraded landscape back into native forest, all by being hands off, right? Gorse is a huge pest problem here, not pest problem, but like a, it's a really bad weed for a lot of farmers um, and people hate it. It's spiky, it, you know, it's just a really, it's a nuisance thing. So it gets sprayed all the time, it gets cut down. But what it does is gorse is a really great nursery species right it allows native seeds to populate below and emerge through and eventually basically turning old degraded pasture into a native forest and so what this man did on the banks peninsula is he basically fast forwarded 40 years of like being hands off letting the gorse grow his neighbors hated him well now 40 years it's just beautiful bush it's native and just totally hands off there was no huge massive efforts like it was very much hands-off and so what it feels like is possible and it is because there's some examples of this happening around you know especially new zealand and outside um especially in south america is with syntropic agroforestry is one of the things that I've, I've been learning a lot about recently is harnessing the the abilities of these plants in particular like the ones that are very quick to establish these ones get put on massive growth very quickly the weedy species um harnessing those to pull succession forward 
and create these beautiful edible ecosystems faster than oh just kick back and wait for years and then it'll appear because you can create a beautiful edible ecosystem in 10 years like a full it feels like you're in this amazing you know jungle that's dripping with fruit you can create that very quickly when you're working with succession and so part of the species that i'm using are those weedy species because it advances succession really quickly it's in a managed system so you're not just like you know crazily spreading weeds around but you're using the plant for what it does and that is advancing succession into these ecosystems that are mature providing those fruits whether it's timber um this or that so yeah it's it's an i have an interesting relationship with like invasive species because at the uh, who was it somebody i watched this video recently i think it was maybe one of jeff blotton's about what it really means like what's the real issue with invasive species and the the punchline was that there aren't like invasive species after you know there there's there's something to be said about native local ecology but at the end of the day you can't un like i can't undo what's kind of been done and so going forward it's like how do we create these ecosystems that are valuable to the planet and people utilizing the tools that we have available to us um and so that's part of what what i see we're doing here is using tools to create these ecosystems that are functional for the planet and communities you talked about goals for your place to be a demonstration location for um, teaching and i know that's part of your goal as a a consultant and, and using the skills you're learning and that you're that you're you know growing um what let, let's go out five years and then maybe let's go out 15 years and tell us not so much on the education side but truly in the nature we've talked about right now about invasives and everything else what what do you think your property is going to look like oh man Will you That's get it. it's any an exciting of that? Can you get any of the large trees back uh, that were uh, that, that you get in the out in the outback areas now? Or would you have to yeah, have neighbors? Would you have to have neighbors do different things? You know, would you have to would you have to impact properties around you more than? Do you mean to create that like oasis where? Yeah. Are you talking about well, birds bringing other native? And like yeah. self-seeding, no, I I don't think that we'd have to be, you know, doing things externally. I think if you create some kind of hub and a reason for animals and birds to come into the ecosystem, they will. You know, if you build it, they'll show up. And you see examples of that already happening. You know, there are birds that because the um, the riparian the creek is already a great wildlife corridor, whether you know invasive invasive animals. Or natives right they use that as a corridor and so there are native presence here pretty strongly and so just leaning further into that i think it'll just propel even further um and i think fast forwarding five ten years 20 years into the future at this particular property it's going to look very different so i'm excited to have all these before photos to see hey this actually went from like a very structured looking orchard into this beautiful diverse very textured multi-layered you know, forest of food that provides for humans, wildlife, et cetera. What, um, what, what, what is, what is there that's, that's edible that you can see is there because of stun, not necessarily that you, that you, you know, you brought in. I, I saw pineapples that we saw in a few other pictures and I, I heard you talk about maize and other things. What could you forage and essentially have edible vegetation? One of the easiest ones that I've been thinking a lot about recently is Cape gooseberry. Cape gooseberry self-seed and they get flown around by birds like crazy. Like they'll just pop up pretty much anywhere. Um, and they're just, they're really delicious. And they're also one of those really great early succession pioneer species. They create a really like, they cover the soil, they put on a bunch of biomass, they're edible, they feed the wildlife. They're one of those species that I've been thinking just a lot about recently of like, it's it looks kind of like a weed, but it's like amazingly edible. Birds love it, covers the soil, beautiful amounts of biomass, and it can be a nursery 
you know, provides a nursery canopy for younger tree seedlings. Like if you have those more long-lived fruit trees, they'll super happily stay below the canopy of that Cape gooseberry. What, um, what are some of your pests on an animal side, whether they be insects or rodents or you name it? Yeah, the second one, rodents. Um, it's not a huge pressure, but it's funny that you mention that just because literally yesterday evening I went out to go um, just collect some food and I noticed in one of the areas that I'd planted with, with corn, every single, there was only like maybe 20 left, but every single one the night before had been knocked over and eaten by rats. So rats are a definite problem, so are possums. Um, those are probably the two big ones for New Zealand, rats and possums and stoats. Um, but beyond that, so many, like New Zealand is so isolated that we don't have like massive, massive pest problems like like other countries might, or like we might if if biosecurity kind of like became a bit more slack or if something happened. Um, so in a lot of ways, really lucky, but there's also, you know, there is pressure from, from rodents. How about human annoyances? You have the equivalent of mosquitoes or um, noceums or gnats or other sorts of things that are, again, annoying. We've, yeah, we've got mosquitoes. We've got, um, I wasn't familiar with them before. Uh, they're called sand flies because um, we didn't have them over in Oregon. Um, but they're just, they're, they're worse than mosquitoes. They're like little black things and um, yeah, they just bite a little bit stronger. Um, so how has the human side of this gone for, for you? I see lots of other people and the others looks like you must be a pretty gregarious guy. Um, how have you, uh, how have you settled into the community and what, what are you doing to increase your um, your influence in that way. Well, do you know what's really interesting? I've been thinking about this over the last few days of like what you just said of like influence. Um, and also just think like looking at a whole, what's happened over the last, you know, three years for me, moving to a new country, not knowing anybody. And now fast forward three years and I feel like I have this really amazing like supportive community of people who passionate about what I'm passionate about who seem to give a shit and it's it's all because I've just been like willing to share what I'm doing like if I hadn't shared if I just had just like if I had just been doing the exact same stuff all the same stuff but just not share any of it things would be so different because I wouldn't have began finding and building a community of people around me like locally and in the wider like in the wider country, I wouldn't feel like I have that support from a community where like, oh, if I say like, I could really use some of this particular plant material, you know, oh, 10 other people around me have it, I can go like get some off of. And that's all happened just because I'm like interested and willing to put myself out there. And so it's interesting because I've only recently been like thinking on that of like, wow, I feel like if, like three years is a pretty short period of time to move to a new country and feel like you have this like massive support network. And so I've been really interested in like, cool, just keep leaning into that, leaning into the like sharing what you're interested in. Because if you like, I speak on this a lot, but like if you could be doing, you could be doing the coolest thing in the world, but if nobody knows you're doing it, then how much, like how much strength does it have behind it compared to what it could if there was a whole community of people who also cared about it. Right. So the potential is so, so high when you're just willing to put it out there, you know, speak what is true to you. And so that's been really enjoyable of like feeling like I like I've been like creating this community of people who can gather behind this idea of like, yeah, let's make a better future for New Zealand, for our communities, for the landscapes and the ecosystems and the wildlife. Like let's let's do something about this because so many people I host workshops here and so many people come to the workshops like, yeah, we just like we, we give a shit about the future. We want to do, make cool things happen. We just don't know where to start. And so in a lot of ways, it feels like what this is doing, what Backyard Paradise is kind of doing is it's like just being a host, like it's just facilitating what's wanting to happen in the community solely because like I was feeling surge. Like I wasn't listening to the community 
two years ago, I wasn't listening to the community a year and a half ago and hearing, oh, what do people want? I was like, no, what do I want? What do I want? Like, I have this vision for what can happen. Cool, I'll put that out there. And then other people who want that similar future latch onto it. And then it's then it becomes this powerful thing where it's like, oh, wow, like a sizable chunk of the community gives a shit. They have a vision for what can happen in the future. Compelling. Cool. Then you can action it. Whereas if like, I'm trying to action this vision all on my own, some that's that's hard. It doesn't like it's harder to do those kind of things, but it becomes easy when you feel like there's community behind what you're doing. Um, and so that's been super powerful recently that I've been thinking on of just like how much power there can be with sharing and storytelling. Very cool. We have about and you're a really good storyteller, so you should keep that up. Um, we have about six or seven minutes left. Um, yeah, a couple of comments early on. Um, I, I was I was corrected in my description of um, I call it filamus, and she said as a native Oregoner it should be filamater, I think. And then another person that uh, that asked what you've really done, which was some detail about your property, and that came from Sam. Um, but with the time left, we have a lot of people in our audience out there. Put some questions in, you guys. Throw in some stuff. Um, Byron's just opened it up here, given a lot of info. So put put in put in some questions for him. Um, Mark, can you think of anything that that you'd like to ask? Yeah, I see. I see a lot of um, cool, really cool videos, and really short. I see that uh, you also use um, TikTok. Here's one TikTok video. And that, that's that's what my son does. He makes TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I found that interesting. That's how I know that uh, this logo. So uh, yeah, yeah, really, really interesting videos that you've been making. Really cool. Keep it up. Yeah, thanks, man. Just the organic reach on TikTok is absolutely crazy. Um, so many people can see a video just you know by chance, um, whereas on other platforms like Instagram and Facebook. Um, it just doesn't have as many eyeballs so just getting the stuff out there yeah so my the people are talking uh byron here's i've got two amazing questions for you um it's interesting our uh <laughs> go to webinar is doing some funny stuff it's taking everybody's first name and putting it twice have you noticed that mark look at what it's done with our attendees and now the questions I have questions from Sam, Sam, and Pamela, Pamela, and Jess, Jess. <laughs> anyway, um, this is from Jess, and she says, what advice do you have for setting up a food forest on poor soil? We didn't talk about your soil quality, but my guess is it was somewhat degraded when you, uh, when you started there. So again, her question, what advice for setting up a food forest on poor soil? Yep, cool. Um... Basically, the idea is that the, the more poor your soil is when you're starting out, the more support plants you're doing, the more accumulation you're doing of organic matter, basically, is what you need. So you're planting things rather than just like plunking a bunch of fruit trees in that are going to be really wanting those like more rich organic soils. Initially, in that first stage, you're planting things that create that soil. You're planting things that you'll be chopping and dropping dropping the organic matter down, but also the roots are gonna be decomposing as you're doing that to build soil both from the top and the bottom. Um, and so it depends on the climate that you're in, what plants are gonna suit that. Um, but to be honest, it's a lot of those like really weedy species, like comfrey is one of them, Mexican sunflower, um, tree lucerne or tegasasti, um, brush wattle, lupins, a whole lupin, like all these um, nitrogen fixers basically is a huge category of like those support plants. Um, even eucalyptus, I use eucalyptus purely as chop and drop because they produce so much biomass and they really just begin creating that soil with the organic matter. Um, so basically that's, that's the answer is like, you need to just create organic matter. And then over time, you'll be introducing more and more of those fruit trees. Um, but how heavy you lean into that depends on like actually how poor your soils are. Like if it's sand, then you're going to be leaning pretty heavily into that. You know, you're going to be growing things. If you can get away with it, bananas in the climate to just create more and more of that organic matter. Bananas are a great source of um, just massive amounts of biomass, um, but it's all climate dependent. So my recommendations might not suit that particular climate, but heavy on the support plants for poor soils. 
So Sam asked, what have you learned about synoptic agroforestry and why was that your choice of approach? Yep. I'm going to guess there, it either says syntropic or it's meant to say syntropic. Yeah, she meant, it was misspelled. It should have been syntropic, I think. But uh, Yep, yep uh, syntropic. Um, basically, it, it's, it's happened very quickly over the last six months of learning what syntropic agroforestry is. Basically, it's a way of accelerating that ecosystem development um, in a way that basically you're, you're harnessing the engine, the engine of the earth. The engine of the earth runs on succession, ecological succession. And so it's like applying our own values, whether it's food, timber, medicine, all those things to create a food forest, putting those plants, having them ride the backbone, the engine of succession. Um, and I landed on it because it just, it, it feels like one of the best approaches right now, one of the best strategies we have for converting these degraded landscapes into these really lush, thriving ecologies. Um, and there's a number of examples of that happening in both subtropical, but also temperate climates. Um, some here in New Zealand even, there's a really great example up in Northland called Permadynamics. Um, and the man who, yeah, the man, who's kind of done that has been spending 15 almost 16 years turning this very degraded slope of grass into this like abundant lush food forest um and so it's very easy to to see the practical of like oh cool that's actually how it works um yeah it's it's just really compelling and it's there's so much to learn about it it's a very new new field since like the 80s but there's so much evidence for it that um it's almost hard to hard to deny its its practicality um, and how well it works. So that's that's kind of becoming the main strategy that we're working with here of just like cranking out the organic material, utilizing succession to create these abundant ecosystems. Awesome. Here's a really good one. It's usually one that I will ask, so I love it that it's coming from somebody else. What's the biggest mistake that you've made so far in your journey through planning and he says planting but i think actually in your planning process and also your you know your operation then from that plan you have one that stands yeah. out that you can share i do yeah, yeah it's it's a great story too because basically when we first moved here the orchard was full of gaps like a lot of trees had died so there was like holes there was missing places where it was like oh a tree used to be there and there and there and I had these big intentions of like, when we first moved here, I had this great vision of like, oh, turning it into this food forest, this beautiful edible oasis. So that translated to, oh, cool. Got to go fill those holes with plants. Did that, spent about, you know, a, a lot of money to go buy plants to fill all those holes. Good intentions, good vision, poor execution, because like they were just so dispersed and it was, they were all on their own. They just got dominated by the green, the grass, the weeds. Very few of the trees are healthy. And so the switch that I've made of, of, of planting, basically tackling smaller areas, manageable bite-sized chunks to get established, planting things really densely in communities of plants to support each other rather than dispersing my efforts. And so that's really the punchline is don't disperse yourself. Don't spread yourself too thin. You're better off consolidating your efforts into a really really meaningful place learning making your mistakes there and then moving forward rather than dispersing your efforts and then you know succumbing to whatever whatever um whatever troubles will happen because you will make mistakes and things will happen better make those mistakes in a bite-sized package and then move on that is such a great answer and it leads right into Denisha's uh, question because I think you just answered it. But um, are are the are there any permaculture applications for someone working with a very small area? And that's just what you talked about. So, um, yeah, yeah. Talk um, about truly backyard permaculture. You now, ten by ten area, uh, ten. You know, very small. Oh, I like talking about even smaller. I like talking about like one meter by one meter. Because most okay. people think, oh, you need to plant, you know, if you're planting fruit trees and everything, you need to plant things like five meters apart because then they're going to grow really big and then they're going to be full size. But 
planting things densely is how nature plants things. Nature tries to cover the soil. Nature has diversity. Nature has things growing in the same patch that are going to live for this long and also things that are going to live for this long and be this tall and this tall. And so creating those diverse ecosystems that are diverse in time, but also in space, you can fit so much into a square block when you kind of begin experimenting with that. Um, for example, if you had a vegetable garden, right, and you just grew all your regular vegetables there, but then you also included your things like your fruit trees, like maybe you include an avocado or a macadamia or a tamarillo or a sugarcane or a banana, you'll still, because those trees, those big fruit trees are still small in the short term, you still have enough light, there's not the competition between the vegetables and the fruit tree. And then over time, just like in nature, the fruit tree or the big mature tree becomes big and it shades other things out and other things grow in the understory. So basically it's about utilizing utilizing the sunlight, harnessing as much photosynthesis as you can rather than planting a tree, cool. Then you have 10, five, 10 meters of grass, plant the tree. Working really densely in a small square meterage, you learn so much about what conditions plants want and how much you can actually get away with. Um, so I would absolutely advocate like, just try it in like a single like one by one or one or two by two square meter and just like seeing how much you can really get in there. You learn so much. It's really incredible just in the first year. Awesome. Well, we are a little past the top of the hour and I want to be very conscious of your time frame. Um, I don't see any more questions yet. I'll let you guys type some questions for the next 30 seconds or so. Um, I have hundreds of them. I'm going to already ask this. Would you be willing to come back and do this with us uh, again? You, you've been awesome. Well, and I don't mean like in the next really near future, but I'd love to just chat with you about coming back and maybe even doing a, a two or three week series for us and pick up particular topics that maybe the audience can weigh in on uh, and help us with. But just be thinking about that. You don't need to, you don't need to commit or anything right now, but, but I think I would love to be loving you and it'd be wonderful. Um, yeah. I would. By the way, you're going to get now access to over a hundred weeks of unique content from Mark Shepard as a gift from us. Really? Um, and yeah. And so, if you like Mark Shepard, uh, you'll get more of him than than uh, you can imagine. And it's all unique. It's not just something that he's done, you know, at conferences all over the world and speaking engagements. His book about water that he just re recently finished, a lot of it was done by the episodes that he did for us in advance of writing the book, a lot of the preparation. And a lot, and it's not just him speaking, so he's not just in an office. He, he Mark does four or five hours of preparation for every hour of actual presentation he does, and he prepares videos from wherever he's at in the world, um, and he probably has talked from, you know, 20 places when he was out doing this 100 weeks that he did. So anyway, that's going to be yours to, to have. Well, we do have a couple more questions here. Um, let's see. I missed the beginning, this is Jeffrey, of the session. Um, but what, um, what brought your family to New Zealand? And, and you did give that. You didn't actually really say that. What, what, what motivated your parents? to go to New Zealand. So yeah, that, that's a, that, you didn't touch on that. Yeah, it wasn't even just them. It was really kind of like a conversation that we all had around. We'd been here before, we loved it, but we were just kind of like wanting to, just like the pursuit of adventure, really. It sounds kind of corny, but like just pursuing something exciting and some kind of big adventure. Cool. Yeah. And have your parents bought into your permaculture and enough so that they're doing things with you? They out? Are they out in the space with you? They're not out in the food forest with me, but they're super supportive of of the stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, they love that I've kind of like taken this and ran with it almost. And um, they're, I think they're just excited to see me like be sinking my teeth into something that is meaningful. Awesome. Well, I think we'll stop there. That was the last of the questions. You guys were awesome. As you heard, I'm going to be trying to convince Byron to come on with us again and maybe do a couple of weeks or even a little more with us if he chooses to. Um, we sure appreciate all of you. I'm going to say something that I haven't said to very many of our thousand plus speakers we've had over five years. We're coming up on our fifth anniversary 
in a month from tomorrow. And that is, you went out and marketed through your Instagram page. And I don't know how many of the people that are here came from that, but, but if you did, um, applause for you for doing that marketing, but also for all of you that came just because you saw uh, what Byron was doing. You'll get the list of everybody and, and where they where they came in from, Byron, from it, so you can communicate with them. Why don't we end with this? Tell everybody what the best way to get a hold of you might be. We'll actually have all of the Q&A on replay. This will be uh, up as a replay in about 48 hours, if not sooner. Um, um, and you, and every, you can get other people to come or you can come back and watch it yourself. But give us a little bit about how we, how we get in touch with you. Um, and Mark's usually putting some stuff up. So. Yeah, best way is just reach out through Instagram. But I do want to I want to mention something that you said about the marketing with Instagram. And I love that you phrased it that way because I hate marketing. But I love what, what I'm doing is I'm just really trying to give value to people. I'm just trying to give as much. I'm making mistakes. I'm sharing them. I'm sharing ideas as I'm learning. My big thing is like giving as much value as I can to people, whether it's people who are like, seasoned and like super already interested or people who are just curious. Like I just want to be sharing and giving as much value. And I'm appreciative of everybody who's come here and taken the time out of their day to show up on this webinar. Um, yeah, mad appreciation for everybody who who's following along and supports the stuff that we're doing. So yeah, and thanks to you, Wayne, for kind of like organizing and coordinating this. Um, I've, been, I've been really enjoying myself, so I can't wait to come on at another stage. Awesome. And for everybody out there, we have William Cobb, who's been with us one time before and coming back on with us tomorrow. Um, we have a, a, every week we have more and more new speakers. So I'm not just going to give anybody specific, but, and then there's replays. So come in, everything's free. It's live. We keep replays up for at least seven to 10 days. And those will, those will be free also. So please take advantage of that. Byron, you have an amazing rest of your day. Um, and again, I hope I can get over there to visit. We have lots of New Zealand members, and there's probably some of them on here with us here today. I know Kate Radloff is a big fan of, of anybody that comes on, so she'll probably reach out to you. And she's she's on the South Island, but still not that far away. And uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Wayne. Really. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.